Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone, Jake from the Curzon Podcast here. You may have noticed that we haven't been sticking to our schedule recently, so apologies for those waiting for our weekly reviews, but we will be back onto a regular schedule soon. In the meantime, we have a couple of interviews to share with you. First, there's Samuel West, star of Howard's End, who we spoke to to coincide with the film's re-release in cinemas. Just check your feed on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts to find it. As well as that great interview, in this episode we're thrilled to bring you a Q&A with Matthew Heineman, who you may know as the director of the Oscar-nominated documentary Cartel Land. Matthew bought his new film City of Ghosts, which focuses on the war in Syria and the media activist group Raqqa is being slaughtered silently to Curzon Soho. After the screening, Matthew spoke to Danielle Pellet of the Institute of War and Peace reporting about the film, which you can listen to now. So as we sit and absorb that incredibly moving film, the opportunity for uh, to talk to Matthew Heinemann, who's the director. Uh, I'm still reeling, so I think let's start with a very obvious question. Your Previous documentaries have covered various subjects such as the Mexican drug wars and social issues such as healthcare in America and Alzheimer's, I believe. So what drew you to this conflict and what was your way in to this particular story? Um, I was traveling around with my last film, Cartel Land, and, and sort of started reading voraciously about ISIS and what, what was happening with ISIS and, you know, as most people obviously quite disturbed by this phenomenon and, and trying to see if there's a film to be made. And then I came across this article by David Remnick in The New Yorker about this group, Rock is Being Slaughtered Silently, and just right when I read it, I knew that that was my, my angle into the story. Um, I reached out to the guys that night, I think, maybe the next night, and then a week later I started filming. So it happened quite, quite fast. And um, yeah, I was, I was sort of fascinated by this uh, sort of media war, this propaganda war, this war of ideas between ISIS's you know, slick Hollywood-style videos on one hand and RBSS's content dispelling that myth 
on the other. But as the film went on and as I got deeper and deeper and closer and closer to them, you know, it became much more than that. It became a, you know, an immigrant story as they were forced to flee. It became a story of, you know, rising nationalism in Europe. It became a story with obvious echoes, you know, in the U.S. Um, it became a story of trauma and the cumulative effects of trauma. And so, you know, as, as seen in the last scene in the film. So, you know, the film sort of started out as one thing and then became much more than that for me. I mean, as a, as a filmmaker, were you surprised by how sophisticated ISIS propaganda films were? And also, how did you reach the decision to include, you know, what level of, of violence could you include in the film to avoid alienating the audience or just more than, you know, the, what level did you choose what people could bear? Yeah, uh, I mean, that was something that was debated, argued about, um, you know, every single frame, every single cut point, every single sound um, was discerned and, and, again, you know, contemplated. Um, I think for me, where I basically netted out was the horrors that the people of Raqqa live with every single day is, is truly unimaginable. I mean, you know, imagine walking out of your flat in London and on the fence there's there are heads. Imagine walking into the town square um, and there's, you know, a crucified person. Um, that fear is it's true is just really unimaginable. And so I wanted to at least um, give the audience a sense of, of that fear and that horror. At the same time, obviously, I didn't want it to be gratuitous and, and, and sort of have people run out of movie theaters because it was so awful. And so it was a balancing act. I don't know if I got it right or wrong, but we, you know, we did our I, best. I think for me, some of the most moving scenes, as you said, is right at the end when you see the impact, the real human impact. You see, I don't know, his name shaking and, and trembling with the trauma of what's happened. How did you develop this very intimate relationship with the, the activists? For me, uh, intimacy is, is everything. And, and, and that these large topics, you know, that I've tried to tackle at least, uh, are so often relegated to sort of headlines and to stats and to photos. And I think for that and a variety of other reasons, we as citizens sort of keep them at arm's length and, and, and don't necessarily emotionally engage. And so I feel like it's my job and my duty and, and I try to challenge myself to really get intimate with my subjects uh, for a variety of reasons. One, I think that's interesting filmmaking, but also it's, it's, it's a way to sort of, uh, f sort of force audiences into, into feeling empathy. You know, I think I want to not take, make caricatures out of these guys. I want to make them, you know, real living human beings. You know, so all of these moments of, of humanity, of, of them hugging and kissing, of, of the teacher and his wife flirting in the subway, um, the snowball fight, I mean, these are all, you know, really important moments just to show them as human beings. And, you know, that last scene in the film that you, that you mentioned with Aziz, was one of the hardest things I've ever had to film in my whole career, unquestionably. And um, it was near the end of filming. It was one, that whole scene was sort of one, like, you know, 
I don't know, 80 or 90 minute take without cutting, um, pretty much. And as a human being, all I wanted to do was, was hug him. Um, but you know, my job was to capture this moment and, and there, you know, again, these guys have been through more trauma than, than, than we could ever truly know, but they carry themselves with this sort of stoicism. And so it was important to me at least to try to see what behind that armor that they had built around themselves, what was really going on inside of them. And so that scene was, was really, really important. Um, and, you know, after, after we were done filming, I gave Aziz a hug and we went out and had dinner and stayed up till six in the morning talking about his feelings and talking about all those things but without the camera on. Um, but it was obviously very sensitive and sort of, I don't know, morally sticky um, experience for me. I mean, you talk about your role as a, a filmmaker and how you have to stand back and be kind of, as the camera is rolling, be kind of impartial. And I think that also speaks to a wider issue uh, in journalism and how war is covered right now. I think maybe our, the, the traditional view of a war correspondent is a Western male, usually a man in a flat jacket, you know, that's parachuted in somewhere and does some pieces to camera. That changed in, in Iraq, and I think that's changed forever in the Syrian context. So the way that information is got out is through activist journalists. But then again, you have the issue where the line between activism and journalism is, is blurred. Um, that brings up all kinds of issues, doesn't it? And does that make you also an activist filmmaker following along that path? Uh, if I'm being completely honest, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about labels. <laughs> um, I don't, am I a journalist? Am I a filmmaker? Am I a storyteller? Am I just a human being? I, I don't know. I think probably some version of all of those things. And I think, you know, they similarly, I don't think, spend a lot of time. I, I don't, they don't really consider themselves traditional journalists. You know, they don't have like press passes and, um, you know, they don't hang out at the frontline club. But they, you know, I think they view themselves as some version of, you know, citizen journalists or activists. Um, they for sure started out as activists against the Assad regime, um, learned how to become citizen journalists, you know, because they're all, I think that's one of the most amazing parts about the film too, is that they, but sorry about the group, um, is that they, you know, were all training to be doctors and lawyers and scientists and they didn't have to do this. You know, they made this choice and, you know, it's a remarkable choice and it's a choice that came with massive, massive consequences. You talk about how they started as activists against the Assad regime. And uh, I mean, one of the stances that the Assad regime is trying to sell is that Islamic State is the real danger uh, in Syria, is the source of all evil, and Assad is the last bulwark against this sort of Islamist nightmare. Whereas in reality, although obviously the Islamic State has been immensely brutal, the regime has killed more people and brutalized more people and has much more power in the conflict. Do you think there's a, a danger that that viewpoint is being is being lost? The view, sorry, just can you summarize it one more time? The, the idea that the, that the regime is pushing this idea that Islamic State is the source of the problem. And then what is getting lost? The fact that the regime is really... Uh, yeah, I think I, th I mean I think it, I think ISIS has sort of usurped the media when yeah. you know Assad has killed way 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 more people than ISIS has. 
And his allies. Uh, and his allies. Yeah. Um, you know, over half a million people have been killed. I, I don't have the exact stats on how many people have, ISIS have killed in, in Syria, but it, it's infinitely less. Um, and ironically, uh, in this battle that is currently underway in Raqqa right now, the coalition backed by the U.S. Um, has killed far more people in Raqqa than ISIS has killed in Raqqa. Um, so, you know, it's an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly complex mess. Um, you know, I'm sure I'll get the question, so I'll just answer it now, of how do we fix this? You know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a six-year civil war. It's a vacuum of power that's been filled by groups like, extremist groups like ISIS. It's a proxy war between Russia, Iran, U.S., Turkey. Um, and, you know, getting rid of one of these things is not going to fix the problem. And I think as far as the film goes, and as far as obviously the focus on, on ISIS goes, this fight for ISIS, um, as Aziz says in the film, bombs are not going to fix ISIS. That this ideology is, is, has been indoctrinated into a whole generation of children and, and exported to people all across the world, as we very you know, tragically have seen here in, in Manchester and other places. Um, so we as a global community, we as governments, as citizens, as journalists, need to figure out ways to combat ISIS as an idea, as an ideology, not just as a military force. And I think until we do so, we're going to continue to see a lot of the attacks that you have unfortunately witnessed in this country. Um, and I think the work of RBSS is one really important step in that sort of ideological battlefield. I mean, as you said, that the battle for to liberate Raqqa from ISIS is ongoing, and it's been ongoing for what, the last 18 months or so, and it's making great strides now. But as we've seen in Mosul, the civilian casualties can be enormous. So rather than what is the solution for the Syrian civil war, but what next for, for Raqqa? What do you think could fill this, this vacuum? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a geopolitical expert, you know, I, by any means. Um, so whatever I'm gonna say is just conjecture. Um, as a person who cares about the region, I don't think political scientists have come <laughs> up with any particular <laughs> solutions. I, I mean, I, I think my humble opinion is that I don't, I don't see any happy ending anytime soon. That ISIS will be kicked out of the city, probably in four to six months. I think there's going to be a very vicious battle for the center of, of Raqqa. Um, I think a lot of civilians will get killed. They're going to continue to bomb the city. More civilians will get killed. Then there'll be a vacuum of power. And then most likely another s group will come in, hopefully less vicious than ISIS, probably with a different name and a different shirt, different flag, and history will repeat itself. We've not learned anything from Afghanistan or Iraq um, we sort of shoot first and ask questions second. And I think we really need to, uh, you know, especially in the U.S., uh, before we start engaging in these sort of military um, interventions, really try to think of sustainable ways uh, to create um, lasting peace as opposed to just getting rid of one thing and then inevitably having to be replaced by another. Well, I've, I've got many more questions that I'd like to ask, but perhaps we can open this up to the audience, I think is that there's a microphone. 
Um, hi, it's an amazing film. Um, I'm sure it's left many of us shaken in this room. Um, are RBSS still active in Raqqa today? Um, and are they sort of preparing for this film coming out and showing around the world? And how are they sort of dealing with that emotionally and obviously security-wise? Um, sorry. ISIS? Sorry, Raqqa. <laughs> RBSS is still operating similar to how you see in the film. There's still the group on the outside. There's still the group on the inside. Um, they're continuing to do their work. I, you know, I think, unfortunately, they won't be out of a job for a very, very long time. I think Raqqa will continue to be slaughtered silently. Um, they think that. Uh, the second part of the question, what do they think about the film coming out? Um, you know, th those are very, you know, tough conversations that we had from the very beginning of what are the ramifications of making this film? What are the ramifications of, of uh, the production process? Sort of the how, when, and where, you know, communicating always through encrypted means, going to safe houses. Um, you know, it, it was logistically the hardest film I've ever had to make just because it was so hard to communicate and so hard to sort of get in and get out and not, um, you know, always conscientious of their safety. Um, I gave them, before the film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, I gave them the ability to watch the film for security reasons to make sure I didn't inadvertently show something that might put them in danger. Uh, we did that. They had no notes. Um, they recognize... And these are conversations we had at the beginning and continue to have to this day. They recognize, obviously, that this film will put them at greater risk. You know, the film is opening commercially here tomorrow. Um, it's it's been, it opened two weeks ago in the U.S. It's opening in different places in Europe over the summer. Inevitably, their risk profile will increase, but they accepted that risk. They wanted to come out from behind the veneer of social media and no longer be avatars to, to show that they are moderate Muslim. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And from Raqqa, that they're human beings who love and care and hug and kiss and do all the things that we all do. And they wanted to show themselves. Um, and I think, you know, I, I commend them for that. I also makes me um, not sleep at night, so um, it's a obviously a double-edged sword. Bad pun as well. But. 
thank you so much for that film. Um, I work for Reporters Without Borders, and it was our privilege to be able to present another award to RBSS uh, last December, the British Journalism Marie Colvin Award. Um, and while we hope these awards are encouraging to their work, it seems so woefully insufficient. Um, having spent so much time closely with these guys, how, how do you think that the international community can better support these incredibly courageous journalists and citizen journalists getting stories like this out that is so vital? Yeah, I mean, thank you for the work that you, you do. I mean, for me, this film is, is many, many things. Um, but part of what it is, is it's an homage to journalism. It's an homage to the importance of fighting for the truth and seeking out the truth um, despite enormous risks. And it's also an homage, to again, to citizen journalists who, who have sort of um, fill the void in, in, in places where, you know, if it wasn't for these guys, we, we really had no idea what's happening in Raqqa. And so if you all were moved by them and their work, um, you know, you can Google them, go to their website, donate to them. They're barely getting by as an organization. Um, you know, and there's plenty of wonderful organizations out there that support journalists and citizen journalists. Um, so, yeah. Another question from me. You know, you said this is an homage to journalism. How? What's your take on the coverage of? It's a broad question, but the coverage of the Syrian civil war so far. I mean, what, what outlets do you think uh, can have come out of this respectably, and what do you think? Which outlets do you think have not really covered themselves in glory? You're trying to get me to like get some tweetable comment that. Uh, <laughs> Heaven uh, for fan. That's not that's not my kind of journalism. Uh, <laughs> um, I that this is complete conjecture. I, I I haven't studied the coverage of the war per se. I mean, I think. Um, I mean, I think we've. I think we. The, you know, mainstream journalism in many ways has failed to to cover this and also failed to humanize. The story. Well, that's that's precisely why I made this film. Is that I, I I think that human beings get lost in the debate, and you know it's so often Syrians are either terrorists or they're victims, and the vast I mean they're all human beings, but the vast majority of them are neither, and so it's really really important to me to humanize these guys, um, to show them, and and as real people, and you know I think. One of my goals as well is is that hopefully you all, after seeing the film, have just a tiny bit more empathy, first and foremost, for them, for the people of Raqqa, for the people of Syria, and for immigrants all across the world who have been forced to flee their homes. Because in this, in this debate about immigration here, especially in the US, with a certain president who is in charge um it's insane you know we just forget the humanity we forget why these people are leaving these places um you know one of the saddest things um i mean not sad in the scheme of what they've been through but you know i just probably did my last q a with aziz in the states a couple days ago he most likely will not be out be allowed, be allowed back in, into our country and you know, this is someone who's risked his life, his his group has uh, uh, they've risked their lives, they've lost friends, they've lost family members, 
in this fight against ISIS, and they're theoretically our allies in this fight, and they're not welcomed in our country. Um, it it is it's it's incomprehensible to me. But that's not why I'm up here sitting here. But that's a side note. Any other any other questions, this gentleman? There? Thanks. Um, I, I just I was interested in the scene where they all got together in Berlin, and they had that kind of, what are we going to do now? And I was interested, I, I didn't know whether you could expand any more on that conversation, because they seem to be saying, the more that they push ISIS, the more that ISIS pushes back, and that they, was it at that point that they decided to go more, more public and more open with their work? Um, I'm just wondering if you could tell us any more about that conversation they had. Yeah, I mean, it's a f far-ranging conversation about a, a number of different things, and, and I actually don't speak Arabic um, at all. And so, as a, a side note, it was, it was a very <laughs> interesting film to make, um, not speaking the language, because I shoot myself and I shot most of the, the footage outside of Raqqa. Um, and so I, I was shooting based on really emotion, not based on dialogue. Um, and Syrians are so emotive with their, with their shoulders and their faces and the way they, sort of their body language to each other. And so I could often understand the sort of periods and commas, but not necessarily the paragraphs or the pages. Um, but to answer your question, uh, that, first of all, that was the first time they'd been together since Raqqa. So it was very emotional for them to be together. Um, and, and the sort of overwhelming feeling that I had, it was just the, the wonderful sense of, of brotherhood that they had. Um, but yeah, they sort of talked about a number of different things. Uh, I think the most salient thing was, was that they really wanted to get out there and, and speak out against, um, you know, since, since they were no longer in Raqqa, they felt the responsibility to be voices for for their countrymen, countrywomen, and and to go out there and and, and, and spread the word about what was happening, both in in, in Raqqa but also uh, in Syria in general. Um, so yeah, thanks very much, Matt, for the for the film. Um, Hamoud, how's his wee baby doing? Is one question. But I also really um, thought the humanizing uh, story with him and his fatherhood and his his father. Um, it was very um, evocative. Um, I was wondering, how did you contemplate getting him to watch his father being murdered again? And was that something that you pushed or he wanted to show you? Or how did that come about? I missed the, the, the first part. Of the, how is the baby doing? It? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the baby's doing great. Um, he, he's been able to come to a few film festivals and screenings and... He always gets to stay in the ovation, um, <laughs> unquestionably. Uh, he has a huge set of hair. He's a, he's quite large. Uh, he's a beautiful young young man at at, at the age of twelve months. Um, yeah, I mean that's that last scene was was really important. I mean, obviously, the scene with Aziz was sort of the real end of the movie, but but the sort of epilogue or whatever it is afterwards was important not just to sort of lift you up a little bit, but also I think there's a, it's both, that scene for me is very hopeful 
um, and tragic at the same time. You know, will baby Muhammad live in a better world, as, as Hamoud asked, as, as Hamoud posited? Is the world he's inheriting a better place? When he, when he becomes an adult, how will he affect the world? And those are all questions that I want everyone to think about and to, to ponder. Um, and I lost the first, or the second part of the question. Uh, with him watching his Right, right. Um, he, he, it's something he wanted to, to do. I mean, he, we, we were talking about it in an interview. Um, and when he said, uh, you know, this is something that I do. I watch the video because it gives me strength. When I look my father in the eyes right before he's shot, it gives me strength. Um, and, you know, that was also one of the hardest things I ever had to film. Um, it just, I don't know, I don't know if you've lost a parent, but it's, it's a, it's, to lose a parent is one thing, but to see your parent um, killed in that fashion for that reason, and it, it, with that spectacle and that sort of Hollywood-style video with slow motion and tracking shots and phantom cameras and gr cranes and fast cutting and special effects, I mean, it's, it's awful. And um, again, I, I think when you see you know, the images of James Foley or you see these videos or the still frames that are often put in newspapers, you sort of, um, and even if you watch, you know, some people do watch those videos. I happen to be someone who does watch those videos, obviously. obviously. Um, they're dehumanizing. And so to interpret that video, sort of reinterpret, to sort of take back the humanity of that video through the eyes of Hamoud um, was important to me, if that makes any sense. Uh, are there any women involved in the group that you didn't, weren't able to show for any reason, either on the inside or outside, other than the ex-maths teacher's wife? Um, not on the outside. There weren't. Um, there, there were loved ones and girlfriends and wives um, that didn't want to be filmed uh, due to their faith um, and weren't allowed to be filmed. Uh, I would have loved to film them. You know, I, I got to know them, but I wasn't able to film with them. Rose, whom you just mentioned, obviously it was an exception. That was ex extremely important to me to be able to have her in the movie um, and to have all those moments between uh, her and her and Muhammad, the teacher. Um, and there are members of the group, uh, female members of the group inside Raqqa, um, but you know we weren't able to to speak to them obviously as well. So um, yes, is the answer. I would say we also are Institute for War and Peace reporting where I work. We also work across Syria, and there's a very very high level of uh, women involved with female activism, um, perhaps less visible, but you know certainly there. I'm sure. You you agree? Uh, tons. I mean, yeah. Uh, there. I think that. I think the group is sort of. I don't know the exact numbers, but they're sort of evenly split within Raqqa. Um, in, in some ways, it's easier for for women to to report within Raqqa um, for a variety of reasons, but you know, partially due to what they're forced to dress in, and and, and therefore it's easier to sort of covertly film and do other things. And so, um, but there's you know you know as many. F brave and fantastic uh, female citizen journalists as there are men, for sure. 
What slightly puzzled me about this conflict, and it's, it's been going on for more than six years, and it has been very well covered by, uh, in terms of social media and in terms of Islamic State propaganda and so on. Why do you think? Why are people not more moved by it? Or am I, am I reading it wrong? The pub, why is the public not in arms about this? this is the, the biggest crisis we've had and the biggest mass movement of people in, across Europe and the Middle East since the, the Second World War. Why has this been allowed to go on? Is the fact that the conflict is, is too complex? I don't know. If I had the answer to that question, then I, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be uh, in some position of power. Uh, I don't know, a professor or something. I, I, Again, they haven't been able to find <laughs> the answers. I mean, we're relying on yeah. we're relying on documentary filmmakers I, I, to make to humanise this uh, this conflict, to humanise the people who are involved in it, which is remarkable if you consider that the length that it, the war has been going on, and this sort of international paralysis. I think people, it's hard for people to engage. You know, it's hard for people to get out of their living rooms in, in general. You know, this film is up against. You know Dunkirk. You know, I, not that that's necessarily a happy movie, but you know, it, I, I applaud you all for coming to see my film, and I really appreciate it. But I, I can't imagine you know millions and millions of people are going to come see City of Ghosts. Um, I'm not delusional. I know they won't. Um, it, it's hard to engage with these subjects. Um, one of the saddest moments for me in, in making this film was as was, I think, either at Sundance or as a right before I went to Sundance, I was at some sort of event. And it was when that, when Aleppo was getting shelled, and there's that sort of infamous photo of the young boy in the back of the ambulance that almost every major news outlet showed. So many people came up to me, knowing that I had a film about Syria, saying, oh my God, can you believe what happened to, in Aleppo today, or yesterday, or whatever it was? And I was like, oh my God, can you believe what's been happening in Aleppo every single day for the past six years? You know, it's like, it just, you know, it becomes part of the news cycle, and then Trump tweets, and then it's gone, and then something else happens, and Trump tweets, and it's gone. And um, we all have sort of, to, I don't know, it's human nature, I think. You know, it's just hard think, to. Have you seen a, a difference? Do you think there is a difference? Again, a massive generalization, but in the way that Europe is viewing this crisis, because it's on our doorstep, and in terms of the refugee issue, it's having a real impact on us. Whereas in America, is it more theoretical? Yeah, to some degree. Um, I mean, it, my answer, my real answer to your question is that's why I made this film oh. is, is is to is to make people care, is to force people to care. Um, but but to the to the last question, I mean, for sure, you know the the pond does a number of things. It it, it sort of makes the threat of ISIS slightly less. You know, the threat of ISIS here in London, obviously, in England and Europe. Um, just based on geography, is much higher than the threat of ISIS in um, in the U.S. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't going to be uh, lone or loon wolf attacks in the U.S., um, especially as uh, as ISIS um, loses ground in Iraq and they just lost Mosul, and when they lose Raqqa, um, you know they're going to resort more and more to these guerrilla terrorism tactics, uh, these sort of shock and awe. Uh, attacks and 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 you know I think that's the sad reality that that we're going to face over the next couple of years. Matthew, thank you very much for being with us and for your incredible film. Thank you, and and.
I just want to thank IWPR for for hosting this event and for the amazing work that that you all do. And you know, the only way documentaries work, um, especially against Dunkirk, is 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 by by word of mouth. So if you were moved by the film, um, please tell your friends, your boyfriends, your ex boyfriends, your girlfriends, or whomever you talk to, and and tell them to come see the film. And again, thank you all for for coming and being here. Appreciate it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.